Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. For James, what it meant was you have the ability to seize upon possibilities in your life, the maybes, the hypotheses of your life. And that's where you can make your life meaningful. Hello and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome John Kigg, the Chair and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He received his Master's Degree in Philosophy from Pennsylvania State University and his PhD in Philosophy from the University of Oregon. His writing has appeared in the Paris Review, the New York Times, and Harper's Magazine. He's the author of Hiking with Nietzsche, American Philosophy, A Love Story, and his most recent book is called Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life. In this episode, my conversation with John Gage revolves around the existential question we've all had. Is life worth living? John expounds on William James' answer of, maybe. He shares about his near-death experience and how vulnerable moments in his life have led him to a more nuanced understanding of philosophy. We also touch on the topics of metaphysics, determinism, suffering, religion, and transcendence. This conversation was very rich. William James is the founder of the field of psychology, so it seems really appropriate that we would have an entire episode of the Psychology Podcast dedicated to William James. And I can't think of anyone better. Gonna a real delight to chat with John Cage about William James, considering he has such a broad depth of knowledge about him. So without further ado, I bring you John Cage. Well, I'd like to start off with discussing your philosophy specialization what would you say is are the main areas within the purview of of the field that that most excite you my specialization is in 19th century philosophy primarily american philosophy but also existentialism but really i mean i was taught by a number of teachers who believed that philosophy at its best should go back to the greeks and the greeks really thought about philosophy as um, helping us through the thoughtful business of living. It wasn't a discipline. It was really uh, a way of life. And so I have been attracted to philosophers who hold that position, and we find a number of them in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. So there's this thread that, that runs through work on what, is, what does it mean to live a life well-lived, as well as more morose, um, why don't we kill ourselves? So those are two big questions. <laughs> Yep. They're correlated the, in a way. They are. They're, they're inverses of each other. So, I mean, we talk about the meaning of life and we then talk about why we shouldn't. My teacher, John McDermott, would say, why bother with anything? 
And my, my interests have really drawn me to philosophers who ask that question in a very sincere way. So Frederick Nietzsche on the one hand and uh, William James on the other. As I've grown older, I've gravitated toward James, uh, at least in part because I think he gives us a better answer to the question, is life worth living, than Nietzsche does. And I have looked at James's life, not just his philosophy, as a way of thinking through my own difficulties. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that and, and hear how he saved your life, because that's the subtitle of your book. How William James, well, it's I guess it wasn't how William James saved my life, but it's how William James can save your life. Um, but he did save your life, right? So there, there's an interesting thread that runs through this book that I wanted to open up with and talk about. It almost feels like there's a real privilege for those who even have the resources to be able to think so deeply about why was the purpose of life. It feels like so many people in this world are trying to get their basic needs met and that is their focus. It's a fascinating sort of thing. It's like no one's winning, you know? It's like you can spend your whole life trying to overcome so many economic hardships only to get to the other side. And then when you get to the other side, you start to ask questions like, is this all there is? <laughs> Maybe I should just kill myself. It just seems like <laughs> there's no door or portal into utopia having human existence no. and i feel like there, there's a deep truth there there's like a real deep truth that everyone at some point in their life kind of realize and well not, not everyone realizes it but it feels like the philosophers throughout the generations realize it and they keep writing about the same thing generation no one solved the problem <laughs> uh once and for all so I, I wanted to talk about that because that was a very interesting thread running through this because William James himself faced that. You know, he got to a point, he's like, I kind of have it all, yet I feel like I have nothing. And it's a very fascinating, fascinating sort of paradox. So can we start there with that conversation? Of course. Uh, I mean, there's a way in which existential crises are a luxury for those who don't have real on-the-ground crises. And... It's the case that those who are just trying to make ends meet, many of my students, for example, are first-generation college students, and they're just trying to get by. They're trying to pay their rent. They're trying to get food on the table. They're trying to provide if they have kids for their kids. And they oftentimes say to me, they say, Dr. Keg, I'm not worried about whether life is worth living. I'm just trying to live. And uh, what's curious is that as they grow older and some of them do um, then sort of move into a position where they have the time and luxuries that, they had, that, that they've always wanted, they then turn around and they say, well, now I have to ask the question, is life worth living? And oftentimes they think, huh, is this it? And so once you have all of your um, needs and uh, desires met, you oftentimes find that they weren't the right pursuits or you find that they're uh, deeply unfulfilling or meaningless, uh, but you have to get them first before you actually have that realization. William James, uh, I mean, he was born into a life of privilege. His grandfather was one of the wealthiest men in the Northeast, and it gave his father, Henry James Sr., the ability to provide a great deal of freedoms, intellectual freedoms and spiritual freedoms uh, to his kids. And uh, the mandate in the James household, and it was a, it's a funny mandate, but it's a mandate that some of us can understand, is the mandate to make good on life's possibilities and freedoms. Uh, it, the mandate is be free. Go ahead. But James experienced something that many 19th, 20th, and 20th, 21st century inhabitants do, which is freedom is really anxiety-provoking. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said that there's this, you know, intimate relationship between possibility and drowning. anxiety. <laughs> drowning. <laughs> drowning is the word he used. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Drowning and possibility, yeah. And that's what we're facing. I mean, some of us are facing today. But to get back to your point, those who are struggling to even have certain possibilities in life uh, don't find themselves in such anxiety-provoking positions. 
what they find themselves in, at least from what I understand, is positions of fear or insecurity or lack, which is different than anxiety. Anxiety, at least for the existentialists and pragmatists, is the feeling of freedom. It's the feeling of, which way do I go? I have all of these options. I don't know what to become or who to be. And that question is not raised for those um, individuals who are just struggling to get by. Yeah. You say in your book, it is as if only after a person has been given everything that one has the chance to realize that everything might never be enough to really matter. Holy cow, Jonathan. Look, your book is not Oprah-esque self-help. You know, you, you know, you, you, you're, you're like, like philosophy self-help is always depressing as hell. <laughs> like you wrote, um, by the way, your book's not depressing. I'm just being cheeky, but you, but you do write things like at the end of the existential day, we're a bunch of meat sacks destined for the grinder. So I guess the interesting, <laughs> the thing about philosophers is that they like, they like getting into the piercing reality and then say, well, what, what can we, where's the hope there from that? And there is a lot of hope in your book. That's right. That's but, right. And but I, I mean, you all start, philosophers are really good at kind of starting with piercing reality as the foundation, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, I think that that's the place where m- many readers want to start. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's really necessary to start where some readers who are really struggling are. Mm-hmm. And I think James was lovely at being able to do that for his readership and his audience. Mm. Uh, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. No. And I think that his answer, when he asked the question, is life worth living in the 1890s to this group of uh, YMCA, Christian, Cambridge, you know, youngsters, when he asked the question, is life worth living? And he says, maybe it depends on the liver. He's not being cheeky. He really means it. So... I know, and and there's something very, very profound about that point that he made. Unpacking it a little bit, he's basically saying life can be worth living if you make it worth living. That and, and intimately tied up with that are notions that he's wrestled with in his lifetime of free will, notions of you know what does it mean to have free will? What does it mean to have control over your life? You know, he was very obsessed with things such as control as well and, and uh, chance and probability. These are a lot of issues he wrestled with in his lifetime that people are still wrestling with, modern-day philosophers and modern-day neuroscientists and psychologists. Interesting enough, the idea of suicide, I believe this is something that you wrote. You said suicide can be regarded not as a letting go, but rather a laying claim to a life that is otherwise out of control. Now, I find that that really interesting, and that ties in with a lot of the themes in William James's life, right? You argued what he really wanted in his life was not to have non-existence, but to have control of his existence. Would you, is that about right? That's right. And I mean, we oftentimes think that suicide and considering suicide is a weak action. But many 19th century philosophers and the Stoics, for example, in ancient thought, thought that suicide and contemplating suicide was simply a matter of contemplating life's worth. And also the issue of taking control of one's life, uh, seizing it in a particular way. And I think that that's what James, when he struggled with suicide through his 30s, he was really worried about the dilemma of determinism, this idea that that all of the universe was controlled in a particular way and that we were just pawns in a great mechanical scheme, that this is a disempowering thought for James. This is the thought that led him to consider suicide. And at least one could do something, right? And this act, this seemingly radical act might be that something. And I think that many individuals that James encounters in his life who were suffering through depression or anxiety, felt disempowered, felt like they had nowhere to go, felt like they were all alone in their suffering. And I think what James did was when he said, is life worth living? The answer is maybe it depends on the liver, is he was saying, hold on, you still have some control over your over your life, over your situation. And that control is embodied in a maybe. What does that mean? I think for James, what it meant was you have the ability to seize upon possibilities 
in your life, the maybes, the hypotheses of your life. And that's where you can make your life meaningful. So maybe it depends on the liver. It wasn't simply saying, well, maybe it, maybe your life is worth living. Maybe it's not. James, I think, was directing us uh, a little more pointedly to the fact that uh, when you experience and explore hypotheses, the maybes of life, that's where the meaningful stuff, that's where the significance is. Um, and I think that's something really powerful in James's uh, answer. And, and, and powerful in a way where a simple yes, yes, life is always worth living, would actually um, not provide that same type of power, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it seemed like his life really fundamentally changed once he came up with the realization. Uh, he says, quote, my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. It seems like a lot changed for him after coming to that realization. I could hear in the back of my head uh, some modern day neuroscientists having a conversation with him after saying that and saying, well, actually you had no free will that you're going to believe in free will, you know, from an ultimate perspective, because it was decided at the start of the Big Bang and all the walls of the universe are outside of control. And if you believe that, if you don't, if you're a non, if you're, if you're, you know, as long as you're like not a dualist, then there's really no, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would he say in response to all the modern day neuroscientists who kind of reduced free will to the causal patterns of the universe going back to the Big Bang? It's a, good, it's a great question. I mean, and uh, we oftentimes downplay uh, James as a metaphysical thinker because uh, pragmatism is uh, famously anti-metaphysical. But actually, that's not the case. I mean, James had a view on uh, what the universe was like, and it entailed chance and possibility. So I, I think it's a really good question. I think that James is a metaphysical thinker. I think that he believed against the determinists. He said that the universe is shot through with possibility and chance. And uh, very famously, one of his students, L.L. Lyman Cabot, said, chance, metaphysical chance, is always, quote, my chance. In other words, there, there are these openings, sort of uh, call them spaces or opportunities that the universe affords. And this is a very sort of idealistic 19th century thought. And that I explore those possibilities at my own risk, but also at my own reward. Now, James argues for indeterminism. Uh, so he says that large chunks of our life are governed by habit, by mechanical necessity, but there are spaces for us to still explore our own free will. Um, and in fact, the fact that the universe is set up by way of maybes and hypotheses and chances is how we as evolutionary beings came, came to have something like free will. And I think that he's getting that from his friend C.S. Peirce, who believes that Tuke or Tychism, yeah, as he calls it, is the sort of metaphysical position that chances are real in the world. Chance is real. Yeah. I mean, when I, I mean, I follow the modern day free will debates and philosophers that if you survey philosophers and you survey neuroscientists, there's a rift in terms of uh, the belief, you know, between libertarian free will and all the different varieties. And um, I, I like, I like William James. Like I, I, you know, he, I like a lot of things he said. He was, uh, probably uh, one of the true geniuses of the field of psychology uh, as well as philosophy throughout the ages. Uh, there are a lot of things I like about him, but is he was a scientist, but he always left open this like possibility for the hidden the hidden order of the universe and like the unseen and and I love that shit. I mean, I do. I I, I like because uh, I'm very spiritual myself, and I I love the idea that he would used to turn off the lights in order to see if he could see the the unseen. You know, where's the, is there a ghost in the room with me? You know, that isn't that cool. That's cool. We need more of that kind of romanticism. It's to me, it's kind of a there's a certain romanticism there. It's hard to explain what I mean by that, but yeah. I mean I I really I agree with you. 100%. So Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said that James would turn down the lights in a room so the miracles could happen. <laughs> and uh, I, what I think is really philosophically interesting and also psychologically interesting 
is that James took the question of the subliminal mm. as the primary question mm. of uh, psychology moving into the next hundred years. He says it. He says the question of the subliminal and the unconscious is um, a central question for the discipline of psychology and philosophy for the next hundred years. And he's getting that at least in part from his transcendentalist upbringing. I mean, he's the intellectual godson of Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, the big transcendent eyeball, uh, the all seeing eye. Mm -hmm. And James suspects along with Emerson that we live most of our lives half asleep, that we don't see things clearly, that we see the, the world through a glass darkly. Mm -hmm. And that the point of living, a la Thoreau, is to wake up, to come to, to reach the end of Walden and say that the point of living is to see the dawn. James, James was 100% into that position. And I think that in part, that's his interest in the unseen order. Yeah, it's funny because you have this part in your book where you link it to college kids and they're talking about wokeness, but I actually don't think that he would be very woke if he was. I mean, he would care about discrimination, all that. Don't get me wrong, but I think he means something different about when he means waking up, because I think that uh, what I love about about what he brings to the table with this is uh, my own interest in being able to see the hidden possibilities in others, like the potential that people have. You know, he has this beautiful quote uh, that I'm not going to butcher by trying to remember, but like dafts are checked, and you know, what's, what's the quote? He's like, we we have, we're capable of so much more, you know, than we realize. And I love that idea as well, and um, I love that he applied his kind of mysticism to human potential as well. You know, like maybe the kid ostensibly and even being measured um, by our instruments doesn't show the potential. But if we turn the lights down enough, you know, metaphorically, uh, we give the, metaphorically we give the kid the opportunities, you know, maybe they, they will surprise us. Um, it's yeah. really not altogether different than his other views about other things in life. I think James is interested in individual human potentials. He's always interested in second winds, these places where we think, oh, I can't go any further. And then suddenly something happens and you can. I mean, the varieties of religious experience is about um, transcendence, mm -hmm. but it's not just about transcendence in a sort of religious sense, mm -hmm. although it can also be transcendence in a religious sense, but it's also transcending the self-imposed boundaries that we have in life. Mm -hmm. And we have so many of them that James says, do one thing that is difficult, <laughs> okay? Just, no, do two things that are difficult every day just for the practice of it. This is, I mean, this is going beyond the self-imposed boundaries that you have in life. I think that when it comes to the interpersonal world, I think James is pretty good on this as well. He says that we as human beings um, are prone to a, what he calls a certain blindness in human beings, which is, I like to think about it as David Foster Wallace's comment that we are naturally self-centered little beasts and that all of our experience is filtered through my experience. It's my table. It's my desk lamp. It's my computer. It's my life. And so salience dictates that whatever is mine feels the most vivid and therefore the most important. And the blindness that we have in life comes in when we actually think we see someone else living their life and we can't actually understand why it might be significant to them. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, James in the essay on a certain blindness in human beings says that he's driving along in the south, uh, at least south to his Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm. and sees a number of towns and uh, houses that he could never imagine living in that are just too lowly. And then he realizes how incredibly um, both insensitive but also blind he is to the experience of others. Mm. And I think that that um, moment of humility is a really important one in James's corpus and a, a really important one for readers of James. I agree. I agree. 
He says, our fires are damped, our drafts are checked. We are making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. The human individual thus lives far within his limits. He possesses powers of various sorts, which he, he habitually fails to use. And there you go. There's the word habitually. He's, he's obsessed with habits too, right? And like changing, he does believe in the potential for change through the use of habits of mind. He does. And, and I mean, this is why he's fascinated with yoga in part, I think, as well, because I mean, yoga does, I mean, the mind body dualism sort of breaks down, obviously, uh, both for James and the yogic practitioner, but also yoga creates habits in our mind and our bodies, but it's also about breaking habits, breaking certain. Uh, routines or getting in a rut and breaking out of that rut. And James famously, he's talking to C.S. Peirce about this pretty famous essay of Peirce's called The Fixation of Belief. And the essay that Peirce writes is about how does belief get fixed um, in our minds, in our bodies, in our societies. And James comes back and says, what I'm interested in is how beliefs how belief is unfixed. How does it come how does it come apart? How does it change? How does it grow? How does it morph quickly? And I think that that's, um, that's an interesting question for all of us, I think. Very interesting. I mean, these questions still don't have answers in science. It's not like I can point you to the et al. study, you know, but I love it. I love the things he, he, he would raise and postulate, especially his second win ideas, which he tried to tackle for a long time in his life. Um, he wrote once, It is evident that our organism has stored up reserves of energy that are ordinarily not called upon, but they may be called upon. Deeper and deeper strata of combustible or explosible material, discontinuously arranged, but ready for use by anyone who probes so deep and repairing themselves by rest as well as do the superficial strata. Most of us continue living unnecessarily near our surface. That's an interesting question. Uh, near our surface. What is, the sur what is the surface? Is the surface our consciousness? Is our surface uh, the things that we currently are and that we just keep repeating them over and over and over again? Maybe that's what he means by surface, as opposed to like really testing the limits of our, of what we could change into. I don't know. I just riffing with you. I don't know the answer. <laughs> uh, I think he means it in uh, several different ways. One is uh, we live uh, according to James and then also according to transcendentalists like Fuller and Emerson and Thoreau. Uh, we live our, our daily life in a sort of surface world, in the world of appearances. I mean, this goes way back to the platonic idea of uh, the difference between semblance and reality. We just deal in surfaces, surfaces of people, and very rarely do we go deep with anyone, including ourselves. So that's one issue. The other issue, I think, has to do with consciousness, which is we very rarely are aware of everything that we could be aware of. We are, we are only, our angle of vision is, is severely restricted and we have the tendency to confuse the immediate with the actually important. That which is most immediate to me is usually, is usually not the most ultimately important thing that I should be attending to. So um, I think there's that mistake I also think that when it comes to surface, we very rarely ask about ourselves, what's inside, how things are making me feel, how I am reacting. I know that we live in a fairly me-centered world, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we typically don't spend the time to ask ourselves about our own emotional state, about how things are affecting us honestly, in a sort of the unexamined life is not worth living sense. So I think um, those are at least three meanings of surface that we could go deeper. That's great. Thank you. Um, thank you for uh, doing a seance here with me and resurrecting William James. <laughs> You're like, hub, 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 the three meanings. Oh. <laughs> I mean, how do you know what he means? <laughs> I have no, so to, to be absolutely clear, um, I, I mean, downstairs, yeah. I have um, the whole selection of 
James's um, journals from the Psychical Research Society that he helped found. And I mean, he is, he was one of the world's greatest ghostbusters, ghost hunters. And he was fascinated by the ex and the eccentricity of it, the mystery of it, the perhaps hoax of it. And he comes to the end of his life and he says, these wonders are not for human consent, you know, are not, are not meant to be sorted out. And so like, maybe I can, maybe channeling William James is also channeling the admission that like, you just don't know. I mean, his friend Alfred North Whitehead said like, you know, that after philosophy has run run its course, the wonder remains that, so it's not supposed to extinguish it. I think James was, James was in there uh, on that realization. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I also like this, Quote, of course there are limits, the trees don't grow into the sky, but the plain fact remains that men the world over possess amounts of resource which only very exceptional individuals push to their extremes of use. So I love that. So just closing the circle on the second wind idea. So his pragmatism is, it goes deep. It, it, you know, it doesn't just cover free will, but it also covers things like zest and authenticity, right? What, what, are, what are, you know, like it, it goes deep. <laughs> It does. Uh, and I mean, the, the thing is, is that James is such a, he was called an adorable genius. He's such an adorable writer, such a good writer that sometimes we miss how profound his thoughts are, I think. And the, the question of authenticity is central to James in a way that it's uh, central to existentialists who we regard as real philosophers because they're so, you know, serious and um, dark. Um, And also to the Greeks uh, who say that we need to give an apologia or a good account of our life. I mean, Thoreau says we need to improve the nick of time. James spent his entire life trying to figure out how to improve the nick of time. I mean, his, his voluminous writings over at least three disciplines, philosophy, psychology, religious studies, physiology. I mean, this is an almost manic attempt to improve the nick of time and to sort himself out and to lay claim to something, to say, I, my life is worth living. Okay, what makes he's obsessed with this phrase? What makes life significant? And and his life bears it out. I mean, if you look at the energy that this man put into living, I know you're not supposed to create the or make the biographical fallacy where you look at a person's life and interpret their philosophy according to it, but I do it all the time, (laughs) and I think you should because like the person behind the philosophy matters. And when you look at James's life, I think he might have been limited in a, in a number of different ways. One has his blindness to race relations and socioeconomic disparity. Uh, he wasn't great on those things. But there are certain things about James's life that are deeply inspiring. One of them is the zest. So, um, okay. So, uh, first of all, I want to actually tell you about my friend David Yaden who has a new book coming out on William James. I think you're really going to like. So I just wanted to tell you about that. I wanted to plug my friend, <laughs> David Eden. He's a, so David David reached out to me, and um, and we just missed each other, actually. I was up in Vermont, and he came into Harvard. Or, you know, he was giving a talk at Cambridge, and um, we were supposed to have dinner, but we just missed each other. Oh, bummer. Well, maybe uh, someday uh, all three of us can hang out and geek out over William James. But anyway, uh, really looking forward to David's new book. It's going to be a great update, William James' ideas about religion, spirituality, and transcendence. And speaking of which, let's let's talk about wonder and hope, you know, because, I mean, my gosh, in what, like I said, in the one sense, you say a lot of really brutal, <laughs> you're kind of savage in some places about uh, about the reality of human existence, you know, on the one hand, like you say things like, each of us suffers in our own unique hellholes, according to Schopenhauer, but this is the isolating fact that each of us shares. But then you do get to the wonder and hope. You do get there. You do get there. You say it is up to us to literally to make what it is up to us to literally make what we will of life. The existence of chance makes the difference between a life of which 
the keynote is resignation and a life to which the keynote is hope. So let's double click on that sentence right there. What do you mean about that? And how can we influence that chance a little bit? Do we have any control over that? Yeah. I mean, this is a deep question. And and actually, it has become a more and more personal question since I've written the book. I mean, six days after the book was published, I was running on a treadmill and hopped off the treadmill, laid down on the floor and went into cardiac arrest and was shocked back to life and taken to Tufts Medical Center where I was diagnosed with um, a congenital heart defect um, and given bypass surgery, or I went through bypass surgery. And it doesn't get more dismal, or maybe it does get more dismal, but I hadn't experienced anything more dismal than the experience right before I left this world. Like, I mean, the feeling of dying is not a uh, one to mess around with. But the feeling of coming back is quite remarkable. And it clarified things that I had written into the book that I had only theoretically understood, but now Mm. at least while I I might not understand them, I think I experienced something of them. Mm. It's that when you hit rock bottom or when you disappear, or when you um, when you encounter your own finitude or your own mortality, mm. there is you have a choice about how you respond to that, mm. and that choice has to do with the difference between resignation and hope, and um, and also isolation and connection. Mm. And those um, those choices are not fully yours, but you can lean it. I think about them as leaning in the direction of either, in my case, I really, I think I lean toward hope and um, connection. And that doesn't make me some sort of existential hero. I think lots and lots of people have done this and have experienced something like this that in the darkest moments of their lives, they have, you know, Viktor Frankl says between uh, stimulus and response, there's this little space and we get to respond to our situation. Everything can be taken from a man, but one man, woman, person, but one thing. Um, And it's the ability to respond and lean into something like um, hope, expectation and connection rather than you can, you can hear me. <laughs> you can hear it in my voice. Instead of leaning, instead of leaning the opposite direction, in terms of resignation, alienation, yeah. um, and isolation. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's really powerful. My my favorite psychologist is uh, Abraham Maslow, and he he talked about the postmortem life. He thinks everyone should have one. He he had something similar happen to him that happened to you. And he said from that point forward, he just saw such more transcendent possibilities in the universe than he ever saw before. Everything became more special and more precious. And he, he argued everyone should be able to have a post-mortem life uh, to die. And to, he said everyone should be able to die and come back. What's interesting is that this, this relates very closely to the James family. I mean, the mystic, Emanuel Swedenborg, had what's called a vastation where everything is wiped out. You just feel your entire self sort of completely wiped out. And all of a sudden you feel something toward a divine or an other. And Emanuel Swedenborg was basically the patron saint of the James household. (laughs) I mean, Henry was, Henry James was a Swedenborgian. William James was pretty close. (laughs) And um, this feeling of being, there's this expression in um, varieties of varieties of religious experience where James says there is an experience known to religious men and women where they quote be as nothing in the water spouts of God, wow. and that experience of being as nothing in the water spouts of God is not necessarily I would contend just for the religiously observant. <laughs> it's yeah. for anyone. Yeah. who 
experiences something of the dissolution of the self and then the reconstituting of the self in what Maslow would call a post postmortem life or a life after death. Yeah. And some people say they get that from like psychedelics, you know, um, that that experience for them helps them kind of dissolve the self in a certain way that they see the world differently afterwards. Have you experimented with psychedelics? Yeah, I, I mean, I can, I'm going to speak to something that I very rarely speak about, but I, I mean, many of my books are memoir and they, Hiking with Nietzsche and American Philosophy, a love story. And that life uh, was lived with a woman who I'm no longer married to mm. and who the dissolution of that marriage had had something to do with uh, psychedelic use. Hmm. And I think, that, so the answer to your question is, have I experienced psychedelics indirectly at least? Hmm. And it is the case that it changes people's lives. I mean, Pollen, Michael Pollan is not off, his, off the mark when he talks about that. Similarly, I was recent, recently talking to um, Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk, though, The Body Keeps the Score. Hmm. Uh, the author of A Body Keeps the Score, and and he's become more and more interested in the relationship between psychedelic, you know, psychedelic treatment and the treatment of trauma. And I think James would have been interested in this, would have been interested in this work. Now, I think that all of those comments might be true, but I think that there's a danger in the dissolution of the self as well. Yeah. Because and it's um it's what mystics used to call pre-list. It's a confusion between absolute narcissism and communing with the absolute. Hmm. And there's, I know it's weird. <laughs> Say again, it's pre-list, P-R-E-L-E-S-T. Pre-list. And this experience of the dissolution of the self and then connecting with something else, I think that there is a, confu- there is a potential confusion that's always present about prioritizing your experiences and your transcendental experiences over the lives of others. I mean, this is a concern that I've harbored for a long time. I mean, I'm kind of curious since you, uh, just since we're riffing, I'm curious what you think about that in terms of when, for those individuals who claim transcendental experiences in the religious or spiritual sense, do you always, do you see that they're, is a temptation to err morally, to err in a self-centered way, to err on the side of narcissism rather than connection. Yeah, I actually wrote a Scientific American article on spiritual narcissism um, and tried to delineate the difference between what psychologists have found, uh, the I'm the enlightened and you're not effect, <laughs> um, versus what a spiritual, what spiritual, what authentic spiritual growth looks like, which is more of a of a deepening of humility of awareness of your fallibility and the complexities of being human so i absolutely agree with that and think that we can really easily fall prey to the i'm in lane and you're not effect because and yeah william james talked about this right he talked about how we're we're prone to of to our ego in uh, spirituality you know but the ego is really what it what it is that we're developing not the spirituality but the ego um and he says you can kind of apply that to any field anything that you become you master or you become good at including in the spiritual domain you can be prone to this bias to sort of think you're better than others because you've mastered it uh, i think james even though he was called an adorable genius i mean i think the amount of self-examination kept his potential arrogance in check. Um, And I really appreciate that in James. And also at least the attempt to understand that fallibility is our own and that fallibility is what we see out in the world. So while he doesn't, while, while he never really liked Arthur Schopenhauer and his studies in pessimism, I don't think James would have disagreed that that we are suffering, that we are suffering beings, and that to see our fallibility clearly is to regard each other as what Schopenhauer calls companions in misery. Mm-hmm. Which, when I say that to my students, they're like, "Oh man, what a bummer! 
we're just companions in misery. But maybe that's some of the best solace that humans like us can have. I mean, well, um, that uh, I don't feel like that's that's as optimistic as it could be, <laughs> because it's true that each of us suffers in our own unique hellholes, but we're not always suffering in a hellhole. Right? Like, we can't we sometimes ever just bond over having a good day? <laughs> I, I, I wonder, so my concern about that move, and it's not just that I'm this dark, dark <laughs> philosopher who says that we're sacks of meat. Because, yeah. I, I mean, I, I like bonding over yeah. commonalities as well. Can we all okay. go to a concert we, and be... We can all go to a concert or we can all yeah. have a soda, yeah. soda together yeah. or whatever. Yeah. 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 Like so, What's yeah. It, it, it's it's it, there's nothing wrong with that, except I think logically speaking, it's almost necessarily exclusionary. And what I mean by that is that the the loyalties that we have that govern our camaraderie are oftentimes exclusive ones. And I think that while suffer is not like the membership status you want to have in life. Like that's not, it, it is, however, the membership status that we all share, which is one of the reasons why I'm like, yeah, at least it's not exclusionary. Yeah. I hear that. I like that. I mean, I like the idea of bonding over, uh, are you, uh, you know, the fact that human existence is suffering. And I also try to make the point that suffering is not a competition because some people kind of do treat it that way. So I agree. I agree with that for sure. I mean, I, I tend to just, um, you know, I, I work in the field of positive psychology and humanistic psychology. So I also like the potential for people to bond over um, transcendent experiences, you know. I, I mean, I, I get into this argument with James Pawalski, who's a positive psychologist at Penn, and also a Jamesian all the time. I mean, and we have slightly different angles on James. I mean, I read James as an existentialist, and I think James Pawalski does too, to some extent, but it's it's really a bit more, it's hopeful without tearing with the darkness, Sometimes and that's what I worry about, yeah. and I think James. I don't know what James would want actually. I have no idea, but I know that when I'm reading James's writings, when he tarries with the darkness, when he says, when he tells the story of having a nightmare and envisioning this epileptic in an asylum and looking, you know, in his nightmare, thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is me. Mm-hmm. This is that." Here I here I and sorrow sit. Mm. Those are the moments that have saved my life, frankly. I mean, those are the moments where I say, I'm not alone. Mm. James lived this really amazing life. Mm. And he still had these feelings. And it's okay to have these feelings. It's not, there's nothing wrong with me that I'm not completely unmoored and by myself and i think james is giving us those really useful breadcrumbs saying it's okay i've i'm i'm here too i've i've gone through it and then i trust him when he says things like i mean i'm thinking about his love of walt whitman who he does see as a type of like healthy-minded strong i contain multitudes and he he admires whitman and i'm and i'm like now i believe you that somebody like me who has a kind of sick soul could aspire to becoming what he calls twice born in other words to to become a more healthy well-adjusted positive person i believe him more Hmm. yeah I mean, I've noticed that a lot of philosophers tend to have a melancholic personality disposition anyway. And it, I'm wondering what the chicken and egg is here. <laughs> is it that – because the thing is, I mean, what you focus on in your life kind of influences – I mean, that is your life. Um, is it the case that philosophers tend to become more melancholic once they do philosophy because they start seeing reality more clearly? Or is it that they're writing about certain darker aspects – of humanity because their melancholic disposition causes them. And this is my personality psychologist uh, lens asking this question. You are asking the question that I have since my 
uh, heart surgery, I've been asking it every day mm. because when my readers send me stuff and they have recently, they say, where's the writing? What's, what's happened? You've stopped. Like you haven't published anything since William James came out. Like what's going on? And I write back to them and I say, I'm writing because I'm happy. Wow. And, the, and they think they're like, what? And I say, and I'm not sure, as you say, what, what the direction of causation is. Right, right. Okay. Is it, is it because I'm happy because I'm not writing or is it because I'm not writing because I'm happy? I'm not sure. But it, I, I'm telling you, and I've not told others, that if you read American Philosophy and A Love Story and Hiking with Nietzsche, there's a dark line in those books. And, and there's even a dark line in um, Six Souls Healthy Minds. And since heart surgery, I have not been able to bring myself to write about the stuff again, primarily because I'm not living it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm remarried with two kids and two crazy dogs and a big, robust life. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes philosophy can save your life from, you know, taking the final exit. And it has for me. I mean, that's what I, that's what I've talked about in Six Holes Healthy Minds. But philosophy can also deepen depression, deepen melancholy, and initiate existential crises that aren't otherwise there. So, who? I mean, my wife Kathleen says to me, she goes, "When? When do you think you're going to write again?" I said, "When I can. When I can figure out how to write about something happy." I love that. Yeah, yeah, I love I love your honesty and I love your your examination. You know, I I, I would argue though that the examined life is a good life up to a point. <laughs> I think one can examine life too much. <laughs> I'm not saying you yeah. do that. I'm not saying you do that. But I think, like, I'm just saying I'm just making a general point, which is you, there's such a thing as overthinking. Sometimes it's good to just get out there and 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 just get into the stream of life. Yeah, and I also think that writing philosophy in a particular confessional memoir genre lends itself to a type of navel, not navel, it's not exactly navel gazing. It's more like you end up living in order to write rather than living in order just to live. And it requires you to step outside yourself so often in, in order to write about it that remaining present is very difficult. And so even the materials that I'm going to publish in the future, they're not going to be memoir based because life is to be lived. And I mean, let me just rephrase. I'm not going to be so self excruciatingly self-examining or personal. Like those days are past. So Never say never. Never say never. Let's end on the note of the loving cup. Mm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what is the loving cup? Why does it matter? Yeah, of course. So James was a philosopher, obviously. And he believed that all philosophy really is, is a form of teaching. Mm. That philosophy that cannot be taught or is not to be taught really isn't philosophy. Mm. And he was a brilliant lecturer at Harvard, and he taught Harvard's most popular at the time class, which was basically uh, philosophy 101 or philosophy and the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when he finished his career at Harvard, the lecture hall was absolutely packed. It was the fullest lecture uh, hall that had, that Harvard had seen. And at the end of it, after the ovation, his students brought a loving cup up to him. A loving cup is basically like a trophy. Uh, And it it was a trophy for his teaching. And this trophy that James received was then placed in Robin's library, Mm. which is the philosophy library at Harvard. And over the years, it had been sort of pushed back into the stacks um, of books and it was hiding back in a cupboard when I was rooting around when I was a postdoc there I was rooting around and found this cup and I pulled it out and it said in honor of T. 
teaching Philosophy 9, which was this class delivered, dedicated to Professor William James. And then in Greek, it said, translated, it was a Protagoras quotation, and it said, man is the measure of all things. And a couple couple thoughts come to my mind when I found it. One is that philosophy needs to remind itself that it is a form of teaching, that it's a very humane pursuit, and that this loving cup was probably one of the most valuable items in Robin's library, and it shouldn't have just been sort of set aside. Another thought that I have is that James believed, not in a sort of radical relativistic way, but in a way that could be respected, that human beings are the measures of things. Mm. And maybe not that humans are the measure of all things, which is not to say that all things can be measured. Mm. Okay. It's just that we, you know, we measure things. Mm. We give life its meaning. And mm. the question, is life worth living? Maybe it depends on the liver. It's up to us. That's a way of interpreting that Protagoras quote. Mm. And a last thought was that that quote, uh, man is the measure of all things, had been a candidate to be inscribed on the side of Emerson Hall, which holds the philosophy department at um, Harvard. But instead, they picked something from the Bible, which basically, I'm not going to um, get the quote exactly, but it says, you better work, you better work for God. Mm. And um, that was the quote that was chosen. But I thought that it was beautiful that William James's cup had that inscription because I think James really understood it in a way that deserves to be remembered today. Oh my God. And that's so cool that you found it. And it was like, it wasn't even prominently displayed. No. John Keg, um, love your work. I really do. And um, love your books. And even if though you're not writing memoirs anymore, the ones you have written will still impact a lot of people. I really appreciate you coming to my podcast today and and talking through lots of these kinds of issues with me. And uh, these are only the most important issues of human existence. So thank you so much and uh, wish you all the best. I look forward to reading your more positive stuff later on. No, I, look, I look forward to reading your, your future books as well. Thank you. Oh, thanks so thanks so much. It's been a real honor and pleasure. Mm, wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at First first Listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see... See what music does to people. 
it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.